Hello and welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour with Serene Saadeh. On this show, we do news and we talk about social movements and community organizing across the Twin Cities. Thanks to Manny Mestas for our show's opening and closing theme music, and I cannot believe this is episode 50 already. We have a jam-packed episode today. We're talking about efforts to defund the Public Employees Relations Board with St. Paul Federation of Teachers President Nick Faber. We're also talking about the somewhat unexpected budget numbers with Clark Goldenrod with the Minnesota Budget Project. We'll also hear from Antonia Alvarez, an immigration justice organizer and leader, currently on day seven of an 11-day fast in Washington, D.C. Alvarez is president of the statewide and regional organization Pueblo de Lucha y Esperanza. Finally, we'll hear from Steve Sandberg, board member with the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute on the future of the Roof Depot property in Phillips neighborhood. We'll jump right in with our story on the Public Employees Relations Board. I spoke with the St. Paul Federation of Teachers President Nick Faber last week about efforts to possibly, def to possibly defund the PERB program, which Faber believes is already underfunded. A PERB, in short, exists already in the private sector and in other states, and in the public sector, it would provide a structure for addressing grievances between public employees and public employers without them having to go to court. Here's my interview with Nick now. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, Nick, I would love to start with introductions. Um, let's start with your full name, your pronouns, and your positionality. You bet. Um, so, name is Nick Faber. Pronouns are him, his, and him and his. Um, and uh, my position is uh, the president of the St. Paul Federation of Educators and uh, teacher in St. Paul um, Public Schools for the last 35 years. So, Nick, why don't we start with talking on uh, about what's going on with the Public Employees Relationship Board? Yeah. So, I mean. What's, what's been happening is um, for, for years in the private sector, um, unions have a place to go to if there has been an unfair labor practice um, employed by the employer, um, that they can take things to, to um, get resolution to those unfair labor practices, right? And um, that has not been the case for public employees. Um, we have had to, if there is something, um, if there's a dispute and an unfair labor practice, um, we either have to take that up at the bargaining table and potentially go out on strike, or we have to actually take what happens more often is take the employer to court. And um, that is both time consuming and costly um, and pulls time and energy away from both our union and our members and our employer, quite frankly. And so I'm not 100% um, sure when, but it's not too long ago that the Public Employees Relations Board was um, put into place or PERB as we call it, P-E-R-B. Um, but the problem is, is even though it was established a few years ago, it's never received funding. So um, to an adequate level to actually handle the number of cases that can and should be coming towards it. And um, at this point, it's my understanding that the um, Republicans are trying to block um, even the existing funding so that there'd be a freeze on it. 
um, and we wouldn't even be able to use the board um, for the fraction of the amount of time that we're already using it. So essentially there's a 0.3 person assigned to it um, where it really needs a full-time um, person to help and, and a person who understands labor um, issues, right? Because this is the other issue too, is we can take our employer to court, um, but a judge not understanding the intricacies of um, labor disputes, either from the employer's end or from the union's end, um, is not going to actually be an efficient way of, of handling the situation either. So it ends up costing um, the taxpayers a whole lot more money on the local level, and it takes time and energy away from our members and our leadership, as well as uh, the district, our employer, um, that could be going towards focusing on kids and classrooms, right, um, is going towards litigation and court costs. Thank you for clarifying that and giving us some context. So you bet. we know that all of this is happening right now, especially with the budget discussion still ongoing. Um, what is, what do the next two weeks look like in this in this you know effort to save curb? Yeah, I mean, I know we had a, a press conference the other day. Um, Representative Winkler and Nor were there, um, and we've heard from other um, um, other allies willing to keep up the fight for this because they they recognize that like look. I think what's on the table is my understanding is $1 million over two years for this agency to have it up fully functioning that could again save, you know, uh, you know, millions of dollars uh, on a local level or a whole lot of money and time and energy um, on a local level. And, and that cost is just a fraction of the budget of the operating budget of most other state agencies. So, um, there's definitely a good case for making this. We have um, allies trying to make that push, um, but what's what's happening with inside the um, the walls of the Capitol um, on this? I'm not, you know, I'm not 100% sure what's happening day by day. But um, we have folks continuing to push for this because they recognize this is the most cost-efficient way um, and most efficient way of, of dealing with these um, situations. I don't know if you have this data, but you had mentioned that PERB cannot right now adequately attend to the number of disputes that are coming in. What number of disputes have come in and what number would full funding cover? Yeah, I mean, it's only been open for under a year and it's received 21 charges and only been able to resolve 10 of them, right? So again, you know, those things that are unresolved um, either are lying with, laying unresolved and creating more tension between employers and employees or they're ending up going to court and again that's taking time and energy against away from the folks that um, both the employer and um, employees are, are are wanting to serve um, you know it, it's it's an interesting thing like there there seems to be um, a mentality that we can chop away from the things that are preventative in nature in our government that save us so much money down the line. I mean, I think of efforts to whittle away at healthcare for folks, and then we end up, you know, treating folks in, um, in emergency rooms that just end up being much more costly and time consuming for us as a society, but also taking away more tax dollars in the long run. And this is the same case here, right? Like, 
an ounce of prevention um, with a well-staffed um, PERB is really a minimal cost, but saves a whole lot of time and energy um, in the long run with, between employers and employees. And again, there's a number of other states that have this. Um, for some reason, um, Minnesota has been unable to um, bring this home and fully fund it and make sure it's functional. You know, that's one of the things I was going to ask is, is PERB something that's common in other states? Yeah, and like I said, it's also common in the private sector here in Minnesota, right? Like there's a federal program, uh, a PERB that, you know, if you're in the private se sector that you can go to and do this. But for public employees, for some reason, um, we've been not able to get our act together and get this in place. So New York has a PERB for public employees. Um, I believe Massachusetts does, a number of other states do. Can you go a little bit more in depth on I mean, you've talked about this, about some of the legislative politics, but what's keeping PERB from happening? I mean, like back at the beginning, what kept PERB from getting the original funding? Yeah, I mean, some of that stuff, I, I got to be honest with you, um, it would be better to talk with some of the, the lobbyists at Education Minnesota. I'm just speaking to you as a local leader who's frustrated that the only way I can resolve um, conflicts or unfair labor practices with my employer is to take them to court and sue them. This seems ridiculous that we can't have um, a place that can do that type of resolution outside of court. And, and I just know how this impacts us locally um, and takes, again, as I've said, time and energy away from kids in classrooms. Um, it's just not an efficient way of, of handling this. One of the pieces that I'm really interested in is what your experience is on a local level as a teacher if you were to engage in a dispute without PERB there. What does that look like right now? Kind of if you could provide an example. Sure. So we had um, one example of um, our employer instituted a two-week lag on our payments of our paychecks. Um, it was um, – Outside, it was something that should have been bargained with us. It um, was outside of the bargaining time. Um, so um, that should have happened. And they instituted it without consulting with us. Again, had we gone to the PERB, um, I, I don't know if the PERB would have real, uh, you know, ruled in favor for us or not, you know, um, but it would have been something that we could have quickly gotten in place. Instead, what we had to do was um, rally up our lawyers to bring a lawsuit to the dis to this district, our employer, and take that into court, into litigation. The district then um, had to hire outside counsel, again, all of these things at the cost of uh, to the taxpayers, and it was a process that was drawn out um, for a number of years. And we did get resolution to it. Um, but it's, it was not an efficient manner to do it. And we sat in front of a judge that did not necessarily have experience and, you know, what kind of, um, what kind of things are taking place in our, in the employer's payroll department <laughs> or, um, and have experience of working with unions in labor disputes. Whereas again, the PERB would have a staffer there that has experience in these matters and could find um, a quick, efficient, and just way of resolving these disputes without having to tie up court. 
thanks to Nick for speaking with me last week. Last week, news came out that the state's May revenue numbers were higher than expected. I am not a numbers person, to my great shame, but I know that understanding the numbers is crucial to how we strategize with social movements and within social movements. I reached out to Clark Goldenrod with the Minnesota Budget Project to discuss the ins and outs of that revenue increase and its impact on budget projections and, and budget negotiations. Here's that interview with Clark now. Hi, Clark. Welcome to the Radical News Radio Hour. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm, I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Serene? Just about the same. Um, so why don't we jump right in? Uh, let's start with your name, your pronouns, and your, your work. Right. Um, so I'm Clark Goldenyard. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the deputy director of the Minnesota Budget Project. We are an organization that um, identifies and promotes public policies so that economic security is available to all Minnesotans, regardless of who they are or where they live. Wonderful. So you've been on before talking about the budget. There was news last week that the state is bringing in um, additional revenue, and in my mind, it seems pretty significant. But, and you're, you know, from you as the expert, what does this news mean about additional revenue, and what is the current state of the budget? So yesterday, um, the monthly revenue report came out. It comes out every month, um, but it did show us some pretty uh, surprising news. So it showed us the state is collecting. Um, or, or collected $1.8 billion uh, in additional revenue above what we were expecting the February forecast um, in, in this May. Uh, and that brings us to a total of um, $2.2 billion in revenues year to date uh, for fiscal year 2021. Um, so it's a pretty big swing from, from what we were projecting in February. Um, but I want to add just a few caveats about what this um, what this number means. Please so, do. Yes. <laughs> so first, um, as with every monthly revenue um, update, they come with a big caveat that we have to interpret these with caution. Um, there can be wide swings month to month, um, and that we really get better numbers when we get our quarterly updates. Uh, and so our next quarterly update is actually coming up next month. Um, so we'll have a little bit more perspective next month. But there are also some timing issues happening. So almost the entire uh, variance in taxes were due to higher income taxes being received uh, in May. And some of that is because when the February forecast was put together, we actually expected people to file their taxes in April. Um, but the IRS announced that filers would be given an additional month. So some of that, some of that difference is that we were just a month off. Um, that's not all of it, though, because there is, you know, it, we are, you know, at that 2.2 billion of a forecast year to date, which would include our April numbers too, which were lower um, because we thought we were going to get all those all those taxes in April instead of May. Um, and then there's also a timing issue of, you know, it usually at this point uh, in in the year we would have a budget out and we would have um, a tax bill. Um, and one thing that we're expecting in the tax bill that policymakers are working on right now is, um, is some conformity around um, taxes around unemployment insurance and the paycheck, paycheck protection um, loans that businesses got. Um, and so 
since the state is planning on conforming uh, on, on some tax forgiveness around that, that alone um, is going to be costing the state $644 million. So again, that's a little bit of a timing issue. And then I would also say that it's really important to remember that with the impact of COVID, uh, state forecasters lowered their projections for expected revenues, and the February 2021 forecast came out. State revenues were still down compared to what we were expecting, you know, just a year ago in 2020. You know, we were still down 1.2 billion uh, for fiscal years 2021, and about 460 million uh, for 22-23. So I think that's really important to keep in perspective. Um, and as always, when state revenues are coming in higher than expected, that's exactly what the courts are telling us. They're coming in higher than expected, not that they're coming in higher than what Minnesotans need. You know, it's still re really incumbent on policymakers to pass a budget that addresses the deep divides in opportunity and well-being, you know, across race and income that are being highlighted and widened right now. And so what does this mean for the budget that policymakers are passing right now? Um, so, so right now, policymakers are um, in negotiations. They're working in um, uh, working groups, um, since we're technically out of session right now, to put together all of these budget bills. The policymakers still have to build a budget that's based off the projected $1.6 billion surplus that was projected in the February forecast. That is the official budgetary projection that policymakers are measuring against to make sure they pass a balanced budget. Although if those additional revenues hold that we're seeing in these monthly updates, that might mean that the state could expect a surplus in the uh, coming this November. Um, but it's really important to remember that there are a lot of variables that could impact whether we have a surplus or not, including, you know, how the national economy performs and, um, you know, how, how state spending shakes out. And from my understanding of things, I know that employment numbers were a lot lower coming into this month. So I know the national economy thing is still, for at least people like me, a mystery. I think the economy, you know, that's a really big question. Um, and I think even just looking back to, you know, the February forecast, which was um, our last big look at what, what we're expecting in the economy, at least, you know, in for the state, um, some things that could be happening, you know, uh, there was a bigger boost to the economy uh, than we expected with the federal bill. So we, the February forecast anticipated a $1.5 trillion deal, it ended up being about $1.9 trillion, so that's extra money that's in our economy. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we know that we're seeing a really unequal uh, uh, COVID impact. Um, Low-income folks uh, have been impacted a lot more. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot we're still figuring out about how um, how COVID is, is kind of impacting our economy and then, you know, and our state. What is the next two weeks? I mean, you mentioned that the legislature has to use the kind of the old numbers, um, but do you think that this news is going to impact negotiations in any sort of unofficial way? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it could, you know, I think as we're seeing some pretty strong revenue collections, um, that, that could lead to another projected surplus this coming November. Um, you know, while you're right, it won't directly uh, factor into current budget negotiations, I think policymakers could feel more confident in making investments that Minnesotans are really counting on. 
um, you know, we're we're looking at a really different budget situation uh, than we were, you know, expecting a year, a, you know, even a year ago. Um, so I, I think in that way, it, it'll definitely affect, you know, how we're thinking about, you know, the choices we're making now and um, and how how we can invest in Minnesotans. I will say, as somebody who's um, been reporting on the legislature but and paying attention to how politicians speak, the economy that we have now feels a lot different than the one people were were projecting or at least thinking about at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think at the beginning of it, um, you know, we were one thing that we were really expecting uh, that was really impacting, you know, our revenue projections is we thought the impact of COVID would be a lot more equal. Um, but what we're seeing is it's having such a disparate impact and high income folks um, are actually doing pretty well still. And so we're, we're, we end up seeing that actually in our state's budget projection um, because since they're doing so well, we're not seeing that same revenue drop that we, we were expecting, uh, you know, which, which I think really tells us that since we're seeing these, um, you know, we're still seeing these stronger revenues that this, this is still an indication um, you know, that we we can't back down from investing in in the folks uh, that that really need support right now. Do you know of any resources where people can look up and kind of find user friendly information on the budget? Um, well, if I can if I can put a plug in for our organization, um, you know, <laughs> we're you know we're we're trying to keep folks pretty pretty regularly informed um, on our blog. So, you know, our website is mnbudgetproject.org. Um, and for folks who, you know, really want to get even a little bit more into the weeds, you know, I think uh, Minnesota Management and Budgets documents um, are, are really helpful. They, they can be a little bit weedy, but I think that's where we can come in. Um, and we're always, we're always, you know, want to be, be helpful to answer um, any questions that folks have. So we always love it when folks reach out to us as well. Wonderful. And is there anything, anything else on the budget, on this budget news that you think people should know to make sense of what's happening? You know, I think the, the next two weeks are, are going to be really key. The, the new budget starts, well, should start on July 1st. That's when our new biennium uh, is. So, you know, we'll be keeping an eye on uh, the different working groups and um, the, the legislature as they come back into session uh, this coming week. Thanks to Clark for speaking with me last week and for helping to break down the revenue forecast. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court made it much more difficult for those with temporary protected status to become green card holders and ultimately citizens, another blow in the fight for justice for undocumented immigrants. There are approximately 11 million undocumented people living in the United States, too often in the shadows. Antonia Alvarez, an immigration justice organizer and leader, is currently in Washington, D.C. with Pueblo de Lucha y Esperanza, where Alvarez is president. Pueblo de Lucha y Esperanza means people of struggle and hope. Alvarez is on day seven of an 11-day fast, fighting for attention to the promises made to undocumented people from Minnesota's politicians. Here's my interview with Alvarez now. Antonia, why don't we start with introductions? Who are you and what organization do you belong to? Yes, uh, my name is Antonia Alvarez. 
I'm president from Pueblos de Lucha en Esperanza. Uh, our organization is in the Midwest, uh, Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. And you're doing a fast right now. How long have you been fasting? Today is my sixth day. I have this fasting for 11 days uh, together for um, recognize 11 million people live in the shadows for uh, more than 20 years, and we continue in these struggles. And right now, I know that you're talking about people with um, temporary status, the TPS. Yes, uh, people from the, uh, they have a TPS uh, permits for status in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, the Supreme Court, they deny uh, people come to undocumented from Central America, they can take a uh, residence. So these people, they continue in the limbo, and it's the same, the same example from the recipient DACA, because we can take this example, the TPS, how it's affected for families together, and how it's affected. Imagine when they remove the DACA program, it's more a half million people is affected. These uh, children now more than they are adult people. They have children, they have families, they have work, they have professions. We need make it immigration reform. That's why I'm, I'm feel these struggles personal in my life. I'm immigrant undocumented for 20 years. My three children, they have the recipient DACA program and they are in the limbo. I have one citizen, and, and I'm married with my husband. He is citizen, but the law is very slow, the process, for fixing the status. Imagine for people with the TPS, how they feel. Right now, they have only four months only, and this is affected for our families together. So I'm here in Washington because uh, this fasting is uh, in protest the governor, the president, when they uh, need people for vote, we mobilization all the nation for make it the vote, remove the last of pressure we have. And now, with this president, we have these actions because we need to see his actions. We, he need prom, uh, make it his promise for us. More than 20 years waiting for this justice and immigration reform with the path to citizenship for all is never coming. That's why I'm here in Washington, D.C., for putting this more public and uh, this issue and mobilization people make it action for every single person we live in the U.S. Thank you for explaining, Antonia. Antonia, how can people support you in your work? Right now, people from Minnesota, they can call to the, the senators, Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar. I'm here in the church reformation in Washington, very close to the, the, um, the, the senators and the representatives house. They can walk in one block and they can speak with me. We're looking for a champion 
for this campaign, we don't have. I know the, the, the senators and the House representatives, we have more Democrats. We have this time. So we need a champion. We're looking for a champion. People they can call the senators, Tina Smith and Amy Klobuchar, for make it action and speak with the other representatives, senators in other states or representatives. Uh, call Ilham Omar. She can speak with us also. It's not, the, it's not only the senators. The House, they need make it action too. Ilham Omar is my representative in Minnesota. I never listen nothing from Ilham Omar. She is very uh, revolutionary person working hard for justice. Okay, I need this justice for immigrants in Minnesota and all the country. But when they never pay attention what action we are here, how we can believe in these political people. So right now, the people in Minnesota they, or North Dakota or South Dakota, they can visit the Facebook page from Pueblos de Lucha en Esperanza. It's in Spanish. And also, they can visit the, the www.pueblosmidwest.org. So we have a two-page, and they can uh, see what what next action we have. Every single day we have actions. I put in my life in this fasting because I'm tired. I'm tired for this injustice. Every day we have injustice in Minnesota for no driver license, we have injustice. Now is the time for all immigrants. We are essential. We are home. This is our home. For children, they never recognize another country in home. So the campaign in, in Washington, D.C. is we are essential and we are home. So they can uh, they can see the our page and they can follow what is the campaign here. Gracias. Thank you for that information. And is there anything yes. else you, people need to know? Yes. Uh, I The people, they need to know. Immigrants, we clean your houses. Immigrants clean your hospitals. Immigrants with COVID-19, many, many people pass away, but we continue to survive. We're working for you, and we need your help for us. I think it's the time. The people, they, they when, when you see people who clean your house, who clean your office, who clean, who give it to your food in the restaurants, is Latino. Please make it your action for the Latino immigrants and all people from this uh, living in this country for many different other countries. We need your actions. No listen, no say poor people. I don't want to do pity. I need your actions. We, I'm, I have hungry. I have hungry for justice and I have thirsting, thirsting for liberation. Gracias, Antonia, for all of your work. Thank you so much for you connected with us. Thanks to Antonia for speaking with me and for her continued and consistent leadership. Finally, recently, the city of Minneapolis issued a staff directive on the future of the Roof Depot in East Phillips. 
For many years, the city of Minneapolis had planned to build a municipal plant on that plot, but community members had wanted to see it used for food and environmental justice purposes. I spoke with one of those community members, Steve Sandberg, board member with the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute yesterday about community organizing around the roof depot, the staff directive from the city council, and what's next for the community and the property. Here's that interview now. Yes, uh, my name is Steve Sandberg, he, him pronouns, and I've uh, lived in Phillips neighborhood for 14 years now, East Phillips, but have um, lived within about half a mile or a mile of here um, uh, for the last, since the early 70s, however long ago that was. Um, I repair um, musical instruments as a trade, brass and woodwinds, and I also play trombone uh, here and there in in bands, um, but I was, um, and I, I'm, I'm also on the board of EPNI, the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, um, and have been for the last four years. Um, yeah, when when I heard about this project back uh, right before uh, the first city council vote, I think in 2016, I just thought, man, this is exactly what our neighborhood needs. Uh, we're struggling with um, the industrial pollution and uh, the effects of the other uh, um, pollutions that have been um, subjected on this community. We're a, a low-income, uh, majority people of color community, and so to, to have an urban farm project and develop this um, Rift Depot building that was coming up for sale uh, just totally uh, energized me and still does, but um, we're We've had uh, such a fight against the city to uh, recognize the values of the green zone um, of which um, we are in and um, the health advisory impacts that have been, you know, documented for our neighborhood, the, the uh, low income. It's, it's also been designated a, an opportunity zone to attract funds for development. And so um, it, for all those reasons, the city should be investing in something other than their plan to tear down this building and bring in more trucks and um, cars from for their uh, municipal operations. I know there's been some updates from the city in regards to this, um, I believe it's a former urban depot that they were thinking of turning into a maintenance plant and it maybe just give some background on what the community has been wanting, where the situation has come from and what what the current updates are? Yes, well, it's a, a 7.6 acre site that includes a five over five acre building, 230,000 square foot um, building we call the Roof Depot. It was actually built in 1947 by Sears as a warehouse, and it stands right on the Greenway. If if you've ridden your bike uh, over the Sabo Bridge um, as you go from uh, over Hiawatha, it's, it's the big building with the curved brick wall on your left. And it um, was built to last. Um, the previous owners had put almost a million dollars into brand new uh, insulated windows and an insulated roof before they put it up for sale. And we had a, a chance to buy it, we thought. But the city, uh, unbeknownst to anyone in the community, had, had some plan on paper from the 90s that they wanted to purchase this building and expand their maintenance yard. So they swooped in and, and um, uh, threatened eminent domain and 
bid up the price and purchase the building for $6.8 million. Um, we tried to get the, the city council to um, uh, vote against that to, you know, fill uh, the other uses for that building. Um, but uh, that vote went down um, nine to four um, against us in, in 2016. So yes, um, we have uh, since then been trying to, we spent a number of years trying to convince the city to share the site with us since they were moving a two and a half acre water yard that they said was outdated up in the Northeast. Um, and it's a 7.6 acre site. Um, so we scaled down. We had received a grant from the um, state of Minnesota um, deed um, department to um, plan uh, an urban farm. And we had organized members of the Somali community in East Phillips, as well as um, Little Earth of United Tribes and uh, a uh, Latinx group to form EPNI. And we, um, so we had money to plan. So we scaled down our, our plans to a three acre option, hoping the city would uh, recognize the value of that for the community. Um, this but uh, rather than even save the building for their own purposes, which is what they told the council they were going to do when they got the vote, they immediately said, oh, it's unsuitable. Um, it's a terrible building and disrepair and needs to be torn down. Um, it's gonna cost you know millions of dollars to tear it down. And then the, the pollutants under the building will have to be remediated because um, there's uh, arsenic from an old arsenic plant. There's a um, a 20 acre plume of arsenic in our groundwater, uh, thanks to this pesticide plant uh, that operated from the 30s to the 60s. So anyway, um, that didn't happen. And um, fast forward, we, we've been working continuously through a lawsuit to force them to do an environmental assessment and um, gaining support. We have all the um, representatives from Minneapolis, greater Minneapolis at the state legislature have uh, supported our plan and told the city to find a different place for their maintenance yard, along with uh, Ilan Omar, our, um, our Hennepin County Commissioner, uh, our Metro Council representative, um, um, you know, we and, and many citizen organizations such as uh, Reclaim the Block and um, MN350, Land Stewardship Project. We've uh, used our time wisely to get support. And so we um, are really looking forward to um, saving this building and doing a community-owned project here. And I know that the city had put a temporary moratorium on the maintenance plan. Um, there was a directive to staff until August. Can you clarify what that means a little bit? Yes, um, the staff direction was passed, I believe, on April 30th, and maybe I can just uh, read from it. Direct staff from Finance and Property Services, Public Works and Community Planning and, and Economic Development, CPED, in policy alignment with the city's South Side Green Zone, the city's resolution declaring racism a public health emergency, and the city's resolution establishing a truth and reconciliation process, um, they're directed to suspend city's work uh, to expand the maintenance facility um, and then return with a report on the financial and operational implications of terminating their interest in this parcel and to recommend a process 
for how to sell all or a portion of the city-owned property at 2860 28th Street in a way that is aligned with community interests and engages community-based organizations. And that is uh, directed, um, staff shall report these recommendations to the Committee of the Whole at its meeting on Thursday, August 5th, 2021. So that's it in a nutshell. They, um, uh, uh, and, and we have um, Council Member Jenkins to thank for uh, recognizing in the, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd that this is indeed a, an example of systemic racism in our city um, and, uh, and along with um, Councilmember Cano, Councilmember Gordon, Councilmember Johnson, Councilmember Osmond are um, supporting the cities uh, um, to find a different place for their maintenance yard and support the community plan for uh, this site. So by, uh, by August 5th, um, we will have our, our report ready for the council and um, what the city staff is doing, we thought they would be willing to work with us in um, determining um, these. But so far they have not allowed us access to the building. The first thing we asked for um, that, they said, oh, it'll take us a month. Um, and that month has passed. So now they said, well, it'll take them another month. Um, not really sure what they are doing other than delaying everything. But um, regardless, we're also planning a uh, gathering there on July 11th, Sunday, July 11th at um, 1 p.m., 1 to 4 p.m. at the Rift Depot site at uh, 28th and um, Longfellow Avenue South, East 28th and Longfellow Avenue South, where we um, are gaining support of, of um, uh, co um, um, a coalition to, to present food and our plan and speakers and music um, and really put forth a positive um, uh, plan for community ownership, a positive plan for an urban farm and um, inviting all Phillips residents, Minneapolis residents, anyone who thinks this is a better idea than tearing down the building for a maintenance yard for hot asphalt storage they want um, salt storage um, and lots of diesel um, traffic coming and going, as well as making a parking ramp for their employees, which all live uh, mostly out of Minneapolis. So um, anyway, July 11th, please put it on your calendar, everyone. Save the date and, and come on down and celebrate with us a positive vision for our neighborhood at this amazing site. It's right on the Greenway, um, and um, it's... It's um, you know very exciting to have an opportunity like this um, to to put value into our neighborhood to expand the social infrastructure and and encourage um, you know our, our very diverse neighborhood. It's really unique in the state of the amount of diversity in this um, uh, one small neighborhood of East Phillips, um, and is why I like to live here because um, it it just inspires me the the uh, uh, way everyone um, gets along, the kind of the grace with which everyone has withstood the challenges of uh, the opioid crisis where from other parts of uh, the city and the region, a lot of it uh, happens in our neighborhood. And um, although we don't like this, we're you know, quite, I'm just quite proud of the city for 
our, our neighborhood for the way it responds to this. Thank you so much for providing all my context. How can people learn more about EPNI and the plan that you all are developing for that site and the city council's moves around everything that's happening there as well? Yes, yeah, so come to the uh, event on July 11th, um, please. And you can also go to our website. Um, if you look at East Phillips uh, Urban Farm or eastphillipsfarm.org, I guess we'll get you there, but it's the um, East Phillips Neighborhood Institute.org is the website. And um, if you want to help um, plan our event, if you want to uh, know how to um, help support us. Uh, we have, and want to volunteer, we have volunteer meetings on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Um, that are hosted um, through the Global Shapers. So if you look up um, look up our website, um, you should find the link to uh, join those Zoom meetings at 5 o'clock on Wednesdays. Thanks to Steve for speaking with me yesterday. We have several announcements before we go today. I am hosting almost three dozen community journalism trainings this summer. You can learn more at my website, journalismofcolor.com. The trainings are pay what you can and the cheapest tickets are $1. Trainings will be held virtually. I'll also be hosting several trainings this summer with The Uptake and with The Uptake in partnership with St. Paul Neighborhood Network. You can learn more about The Uptake only trainings at our Facebook page. And those trainings are free, but donations are always appreciated. You can learn more and register for the eight-part series of trainings with the uptake in SPNN at spnn.org under their events tab. Register for one, two, or as many as you would like. These trainings are free and will likely be held in person with more details coming soon on that. One last, one last quick note. This show was recently picked up by KRSM, a low-power FM radio station in Minneapolis, and we're still continuing to air on WFNU, Frogtown Community Radio in St. Paul. We'll have new and original content airing Tuesdays at 1 p.m. on KRSM in Minneapolis, beginning today, um, still under the Radical News Radio Hour brand, and we're continuing our partnership with WFNU. We're very excited, and I am so excited for this opportunity. And I'll also be podcasting each original episode made for both channels and our current podcast and social media sites. Well, that's it for now. Just a reminder that you can find the Radical News Radio Hour on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter at CMiriam. And you can listen to previously aired episodes of this show wherever you get your podcasts. Our website is journalismofcolor.com, and that's where you can also find a transcript of this episode. You can reach our show at radicalnewsradiohour at gmail.com with tips, recommendations, and any questions. For now, thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Radical News Radio Hour.